following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Alright, so 1 Peter 3, 1-7. Uh, marriage, wives, and husbands. Alright, so I'm going to... So, uh, when I came to speak on... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and this section on wives and husbands, that's the order that Peter takes it in, wives and husbands. Uh, I decided to do a kind of two-part piece, first of all looking at human sexuality the first week and then this week, uh, looking in some detail at what Peter says here uh, in this uh, short passage. So let me just uh, kind of give a a refresher on what I said last week. So I... uh, tried to give some kind of an introduction to uh, human sexuality and I tried to set out the huge difference between a western view of sexuality and uh, a view of sexuality that we find in the Bible and increasingly those two uh, things are moving further and further apart in uh, our societies so I suggested that uh, our societies and especially western societies have rejected God's design for sexuality and we are rapidly descending into a situation of confusion and chaos. And then we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and I suggested that, um, that God invented and established human sexuality right at the beginning of the creation. But he gave it a context. And the context is that a man is to leave his father and mother uh, and be joined to his wife and he cleaves to her and the two become one flesh amongst other things, through sexual union. So God's plan for sexuality is commitment. It's one man and one woman. It's marriage. And that creates the environment that God intended for the birth and the raising of children. We also went to Matthew chapter 19 and we saw that when Jesus quoted those words from Genesis chapter 2, he added a phrase to the end of them. He said, Whom God has joined together, let no one separate And that breathtaking thought uh, points to the significance of marriage. God joins a man and a woman together. And when you realise that, then you never will call marriage just a piece of paper. Uh, And you'll never treat dissolving of any marriage lightly, because God joins a man and a woman together. We also said last week that, (coughs) excuse me, that in a very real sense, in creating marriage, God wove into his creation the story of the world. So my point was that however imperfectly every marriage is designed to be a living testimony that points to Christ and his bride, the church, destined one day to be the king and the queen of heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So my point was that in the biblical worldview, marriage is fundamentally not just some practical arrangement to ensure companionship, to prevent uh, sexual chaos and the spread of sexually transmitted infections. It's, it's not only a way to provide security and stability for children to be raised. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It is all of those things. In fact, all of those things are vital for a civilization to thrive, even survive. But human marriage is much more than that. So, uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 calls marriage a divine mystery. You see, When God created men and women and marriage and sexuality, in doing so he set about illustrating things that are most precious to his own heart. 
So I said that every marriage points beyond itself to a greater significance, to the ultimate purpose of the creation, which, and a kind of reminder that the world seems to have been created, that the father would provide a wife for his son, a bride, uh, whom he would purchase with his own blood, the church. So I finished last week with a, a series of questions. I said, those things are so important to know the kind of big picture of what marriage is, because unless we know that, then how can a man... Uh, ever know what kind of a husband he is meant to be unless he realises that in some way he is called to reflect Christ's love for the church in the way that he loves his wife. And how can we avoid speaking of the husband's faithfulness towards his wife without remembering that Christ will never leave his bride, the church, for other lovers? And how can a wife know what it means to be a wife unless she realises that she is called to reflect the church's submission to Christ, her head? And how can a young married couple understand that when they marry, that their marriage is fundamentally not for themselves and their own selfish agenda, unless they look at Christ and his bride, the church, because uh, Christ and the church, they stand united, they complement each other, and they look out to serve the world. And that young married couple must realise that their marriage is not just for themselves, so they can look at each other for 40 years and admire each other, but they turn and they face the world and they serve the world. Marriage is not fundamentally for us. It's for God that we marry. And of course, we have benefits of getting married. So that's a kind of summary of what I said last week. The second thing I want to say, I've got a, some headings here. So the first one was uh, some, um, a refresher of the first week. God created the male and female. And the second heading is a broken people, broken world. So before we come to our passage, let me just say something about our lives and our world Because even thinking about marriage and sexuality can be painful for many. You see, to a lesser uh, or a greater or lesser extent, we are all broken. Uh, We are broken people and we live in a broken world. You see, nothing has been neat and straightforward since Adam and Eve took that fruit in the garden all those centuries ago. The forbidden fruit, fruit. Nothing has been neat and straightforward And that means that life is very complicated and at times it's very painful. And uh, through the decades, things happen to us or we do things that we never expected we would do when we set out on our life journey. What I'm saying is this, that the fall casts a long shadow right through human history and we live in that shadow. Even though we live with the blessings of the new covenant... Uh, we will always live in a broken world as broken people until Christ returns. And that means that all of us will have a history that is, un- that is likely to be imperfect and it's likely to be painful in places and marred with sadness. And that's normal for human experience. You see, people who demand perfection never attain it. Uh, and usually they end up with nothing but disappointment in life. I think it was uh, Edith Schaefer Uh, Francis Schaeffer's wife, she said, if you aim for for perfection in marriage, you don't end up with perfection, you end up with nothing. And it's the same in the whole of life. If you try to aim for perfection, you end up with absolutely nothing because the world is a broken place. Now, when you come to Scripture, the Scriptures on marriage, they sound a high note. So they call us to high standards. And that's right and good. We need high standards. But at the same time, the New Testament's teaching or behind the New Testament's teaching, is a realism that we fall short. 
And we fail. And other people fail us too. They let us down badly. And sometimes we break our promises and marriages fail and divorces happen. And there are no perfect wives and there are no perfect husbands and there are no perfect children. And in one form or another, we all experience fiery trials and temptations to do things that God forbids. These are the, this is the lot of being a human being here on this earth. So my point is that we live in the midst of brokenness, but there is always forgiveness and there is restoration and there are new beginnings. The point is that this world is not perfect, but there is a world of perfection to come, but it is not yet when Christ returns. So I want you to keep all of that in mind as we think about this passage. So here's my third heading, God's intention for wives. God's intention for wives. So Peter says, Likewise, wives, and so if you've got your Bible, it should be here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adoring adoring, sorry, be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery, all the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And let me read some other words from Ephesians 5 as well. So, we have this on a slide. Ephesians 5, uh, Paul says this time, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their husbands. Alright, so Peter begins by instructing wives to be subject to their own husbands. Or we could translate this by saying that he instructs wives to be in submission to their own husbands. Now, I realise fully that these words are toxic to our generation, to say the least. Uh, where mostly we live in a world where there's only one authority that we submit to and that's our own authority. We live in a world that is this side of the philosophers who are called the masters of suspicion. They taught us many things, but they taught us what we call the hermeneutic of suspicion, that the whole of life we need to interpret through the lens of suspicion. And this idea is deep in our society that all authority is just a a disguise for oppression. And when when we try to legitimize authority, it's just a cover story so that we can oppress somebody else. Uh, That's deep in our society. I was at a wedding in London about 20 years ago. uh, And the the marriage passage from Ephesians 5 was read out. But I was quite surprised because they missed out the section about wives submitting to their husbands. Just about the husband loving their wife as Christ loves the church. And the bride told me afterwards that she just couldn't face having that in there because a non-Christian family would be so offended. And even many... Christians have found all kinds of clever ways to argue that these New Testament passages about wives submitting to their husbands were only relevant into the culture in which they were written. They were just relevant into first century culture. 
Um, but now we live in an age where women have come of age and they're now educated, so these things don't apply to us. Or you get attempts to say that the Bible stresses mutual submission, the husband and the wife, to each other. Or they say something like this, that the trajectory of the whole Bible is towards equality. And Paul and Peter were just kind of laying seeds of what would later be a trajectory towards full equality between men and women in terms of their roles. Uh, other people say that headship is not an authority word. The word head is not an authority word, it just means source or something like that. So I've read all these arguments very carefully over the years and I don't find them persuasive. I think that submission of the wife in marriage is part of God's order and plan for marriage. I don't think it's time bound or culture bound. But you know what we need to see, and we need lots of explanation for this kind of passage. What we need to see to recognise is that when Peter and Paul call wives to submit to their husbands, they're not saying anything which is inconsistent with the gospel message of the liberation of human beings from humiliation, exploitation and oppression. You know, in the first century, in wider culture, both, I think, in uh, Jewish culture and also in Gentile culture, women were seen mostly as inferior to men. So a Jewish wife was owned by her husband. Uh, She was a thing, not a person in law. Uh, And the husband could do pretty much what he wanted with her. So every morning when a man arrived at the synagogue, uh, this is in Jewish uh, culture, obviously, uh, the Jewish man thanked God that he wasn't born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And in Greek culture, uh, a woman was expected to run the home and to rear the children, but it was fully expected that the husband would find his sexual satisfaction in a brothel or with a mistress. And when you realise things like that, then you begin to understand that the message of the New Testament challenges the culture of the day radically. So it's very telling to me that during the days of Jesus on the earth, he gave honour and dignity to women. Um, so in the Gospel accounts you find Jesus teaching women, he, even, he taught despised prostitutes, uh, he, uh, he, he considered women like Mary and Martha to be his personal friends. In fact, when that crunch question came, um, he refused to use a woman caught in adultery as a scapegoat. And it's also interesting that in the providence of God, women were permitted to be the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even though in first century Jewish culture, the witness of a woman woman counted for very little. It's one of those neat things that points to the reliability of the gospel accounts when it comes to the resurrection. You see, if you'd made them up, you would never have uh, women as the first witnesses, because women were, were not trusted as witnesses. Uh, But you see, the gospel writers were more concerned with telling the truth than with creating a story that would appear believable. And ironically, they made it more believable, if you can follow that. But beyond Jesus, uh, Paul, who many consider today to be a misogynist, somebody who is hateful towards women, uh, Paul stressed the oneness of human beings in Christ. So in terms of standing before God, there is no difference between male and female. That was revolutionary for the times. So what I think we need to see is that the Christian message, the gospel, gives dignity to women, to women, and it still does. But I think, against the background of, of, of the culture that many of us 
come from or cultures that we come from, what we need to see is that in God's world there is such a thing as a wife and there is such a thing as a husband. And what I mean by that is that the wife holds a God-appointed office and the husband has a God-appointed office as well. And both the husband and the wife have to learn to function according to their God-appointed office, their role. You see, what I'm opposing is this modern idea of two interchangeable partners. Almost like modern marriage is two individuals living under the same roof, two friends who get together where there were no specific responsibilities attached to the husband or the wife. You see, marriage is not, I'll marry you, but I'm going to continue to be myself in every way I possibly can. You take me as you find me, I'm, a, I'm an individual. A biblical attitude will be like this. How do I reconfigure my life to fulfil my husbandly responsibilities towards my wife? And for a wife, how does she change her life to fulfil her wifely responsibilities towards her husband. You see, my point is is that when a man and a woman marry, they are to radically adjust their lives to what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife. This came home very strongly to me uh, a few years ago when I was talking to a lady and she said to me about some things that were going on in her home. She said, God calls me to be a wife to my husband before he calls me to be a, a mother to my children. And I thought, Wow, she's right. You see, today we think lots of, about being a parent, but I think we, we think very little about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Just to kind of illustrate this, I grew up in the 1970s in, in a church in the north of England, and, and we experienced a kind of measure of revival, and lots of students became believers. And there were lots of couples who got married at the same time, and they had children at the same time, so there were lots of children around all over the place. Uh, and I was one of them. But as I look back, my abiding conclusion was that few, if any, of these young parents had any idea how to parent. That sounds a bit uncharitable, but I, I think it's probably true. You know, today we have this child-centred uh, view of parenting when we've kind of gone, we've swung the other way when we, the child is the centre of everything. But in those days, it was just like our mothers and fathers got on with their own lives and that the children were kind of dragged along behind. They were not permitted to speak or really have opinions or feelings or interests. And kind of the point of parenting was that you just did lots of spanking. And uh, parenting was almost associated with physical punishment. And so much as you spanked your kids enough, they'd be fine. But it was as if nobody had any idea how to parent. I can count on my hand, I think, the number of times that my parents actually sat down and talked to me about life or how I was doing. Um, and I think in, there's a kind of parallel, really, that I think increasingly we live in an age where husbands have very little idea what it means to be a husband and wives have very little idea what it means to be a wife to their husband. So how do we understand Peter's call for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, what we're speaking of in these verses is the wife's acceptance of the husband's headship in the marriage. It's and we'll talk about this in a minute, that the authority in the relationship and in the family is granted by God to the husband. So implicit in, implicit in the husband's responsibility and in headship is the taking of responsibility and initiative and leading, especially in spiritual matters, in his family. Now very often the husband's leadership is not automatic. The husband must take hold of his role 
that God has given him with both of his hands. And the wife must allow him to do that. If he doesn't, then she's likely to step in and take it herself. Now, according to the New Testament, the, the husband's headship is rooted in two places. So first, the husband's headship is rooted in creation. So Eve was raised up to be Adam's helper. So the Bible tells us that Eve was made after the man, out of the man, and for the man. In uh, Genesis chapter 2, it says, Eve had no suitable helper for him, so the Lord made him one. She was made for him. And then Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11, where he said that for the man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was the, the man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, I know that this is about as politically incorrect as you can possibly get in the age that we live in. Uh, and we live in a time when when you marry, you, give, you don't give up anything, especially you're not your own independence. And the idea that you make sacrifices for somebody else and you serve them is almost incomprehensible. But the New Testament's teaching, I believe, is this, that the wife is not the husband's rival. And she's certainly not his slave. But she is to be his loyal helper to assist him accomplish the goals that God has given him in life. And submission is in that context. So for the wife, it's not in asserting her independence that she finds fulfilment in God's economy. It's in serving her husband and children. And it's for that reason that when a woman marries, she must think very carefully about, is this the kind of man that she can join herself to? Can she join herself to his vision and goals for life? Can she be his helper? Now, I should add that there's nothing inferior about being a helper. In fact, God himself is called a helper in many places in Scripture. He's called our helper. So a helper, wife, empowers her husband using her resources, resources that often he will not have, that he needs. Now, nothing I'm saying here excludes the fact that the wife may well have her own ministry. She, may, she will certainly have her own interests. Um, but what it, what it means is that primarily her calling in life is to assist her husband in the God-given calling that God has given, her, given him. Sorry. Now, um, I would love to speak to you this morning about motherhood. I haven't got time to speak about motherhood. But except to say this, just one thing that... that of all the lies that Satan has fed this generation, and there are many, the lie that motherhood is a calling which is of little value is about the worst lie of them all. Uh, if you're a mother, never say, I'm just a mum. Never say that. There is a high calling in motherhood, which uh, is another sermon, but maybe on Mother's Day sometime I'll speak on that. But uh, this idea that the, that the mother has a small calling because she is a mother is a tragic lie that Satan has fed into our generation. That somehow if you work for a big company and you're marketing toothpaste and you're wearing a suit and you've got a briefcase, then you're more important than a mother. That's a kind of unbelievable distortion of the modern world. So headship is rooted in creation. You find it in Genesis 2, you find it in 1 Corinthians 11, and you find it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But secondly, uh, headship, male headship in marriage and the family... He's also linked to redemption. So in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul suggests that the motivation for the church's submission to Christ is Christ's sacrificial love for her, the bride. And in a similar way, the, the wife is called to submit to her husband in recognition of his loyal and sacrificial love for her. 
his devotion to her welfare. That's how it's supposed to work. So what is submission not of the wife? It's not some unthinking obedience, but it's designed to be a a grateful acceptance of her husband's care, provision and protection. You know, when I was... um, Let's get some water. When I was a little boy, I used to... uh, watched the wrestling with my grandfather back in the 1970s and 80s on a Saturday afternoon on the television this thing called World of Sport and we had the the wrestling at 3 o'clock now in a wrestling match uh, the man or the competitor or the man in those days certainly wins with three falls or a submission you submit when you're defeated and that's what many people think of as submission it's being forced to give way to somebody bigger fatter and uglier than you are. But in the New Testament, that's not what we mean by submission at all. Submissiveness to your husband doesn't mean that you're a a kind of cowering servant who is seen and not heard and picks up all the worst jobs in the home. And submission doesn't mean that a wife doesn't have a mind of her own and it doesn't mean that she doesn't have authority over her children and it doesn't mean that she can't make lots of decisions. And in fact, all wise husbands will listen to their, to their wife's advice all the time. I do to mine. And neither is submission weakness. You know, it takes, often takes great strength to submit. You know, dominating others is not a sign of strength. Nor does it mean that the wife is less than her husband. Um, it doesn't mean that she is not equal to her husband in terms of value and importance. And you see that in the Trinity. So Jesus was submitted to his father, but it didn't make him unequal to his father. You see, this is, and this is really important, and, and it's, it's so misunderstood in today's day and generation, that submission in God's world has got nothing to do with being inferior. The wife is not less than her husband, and, and, and she's certainly not weaker either, except perhaps physically. And the husband's authority has has got nothing to do with him being superior to his wife. It's got nothing to do with that. You see, and I find that there are very few people who understand this, you know, in God's world, any authority that we have is always a derived authority. We derive our authority from God himself. Any authority that we have has its origins in God. So elders in a church derive their authority from God. And parents derive their authority from from God to lead their children, to nurture them and discipline them. Their authority comes from God. And in this case, the the husband's headship in the family is a derived authority. And that means that no husband has any authority in and of himself. He only has authority which is given to him by God, um, which has its source in God. So the point is that There is an order in the family that God has ordained and God bestows authority on the husband. And here's the point that he he gives authority to the husband in order to bring about the plans that he has for that family. Which are his, which is his will for the family. So the husband uh, has authority, but he, 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 he never has authority to use that authority for his own selfish agenda. Or to get his own way. He has authority 
For this reason alone, to do God's will for the family. And if he's wise, he dare not step outside of the bounds of that, of God's plans for a family and for marriage. And you see, one day the husband must, the husband must give an account for what he did with the authority that God gives him. The authority that's been invested in him. Every husband will one day stand before God and explain what he did with the authority that God had given him. How did he use his authority for the sake of his wife and children to benefit them? And I find that sobering, even though I believe it, that one day I will account to God for how I treat my wife uh, and my children. You see, my point really is this, that all authority is a derived authority. I have no authority in myself just because I'm a man. I have authority in my family because God has given it to me. But not only is it a derived authority, but I am accountable for that authority to God. And we should also note on the theme of submission that submission is never absolute. So Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So if what the husband expects of her goes against what is right in God's sight, then I don't think she has any obligation to obey him or to submit to him. Now, the context uh, of what I've said is, uh, so far is where you have a husband and a wife who are both believers. But that's probably not the context of what Peter is talking about here in our passage. Peter seems to be addressing um, a situation where seemingly the husband is not a believer. So, so the, the husband is uh, unlikely to be thinking, I ought to love my wife as Christ loves, loves the church. It's unlikely that he's going to be thinking, I derive my authority from God. But even then, even when you have a, a believing wife and an unbelieving husband, and, and I find this difficult, um, I have to confess that, uh, that Peter tells wives to submit to their husbands and to win them for Christ, or attempt to, to win them to Christ by submission to their non-believing husband. So Peter's... Um, Special case here. He looks at governments. How do we deal with governments? He looks at how do we deal with how do slaves relate to their masters? And this is the third kind of special case. Is how does a Christian wife relate to a non-Christian husband? It's a common situation, isn't it? I think in my life I've met five men who are believers who are married to unbelieving wives. But I think I could count 30 to 40 um, believing wives who are married to non-believing husbands. So he says in verse 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they're unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter is saying that the wife's manner of life may be so powerful that it can win the husband over without a word being spoken. Now, There are no guarantees, of course, in case any woman in that situation feels condemned. In fact, I know a lady in England and she was married to an unbelieving husband for 40 years and she followed this kind of advice from Peter exactly. She loved her husband, submitted to him, but he went to his grave never believing the gospel. No guarantees. But I think it's helpful for wives who think that somehow being the sole Christian in the household gives them the right to be in charge and I, I've seen that in a few, on a few occasions. Peter's saying, no, let the way that God has ordained it prevail. Submit to your husband and so demonstrate your faithfulness to Christ as you seek to win him. You see, 
very often in our society, we have this idea that you change people by dominating them or by manipulating them. But on many occasions, the Christian seeks to change people by submission to them. And that applies in all kinds of contexts. Uh, We try to win others with kindness and love and gentleness, not with force of will. So these words remind us that often it's the actions of our lives that preach a better sermon than our lips do. So they kind of remind us that, um, that for a wife living with an unbelieving husband, the best way to win him is not to nag him or to pester him about coming to church or reading the Bible, but through submitting to him and living a life infused with the beauty of the Christian gospel. And then Peter gives advice on appearance uh, to to wives, to women, um, on what is true beauty. So I think Peter's probably still still speaking to unbelieving wives, but actually the context can apply to to all of us, but especially here to women, Um, I guess today increasingly to men. But he reminds them that that true beauty is not the outward variety of braided hair, gold jewellery and fine clothes. And I think, you know, in our time and generation we need to hear this because we live in an age where we're obsessed with outward beauty to the exclusion of inward beauty. I remember this came home to me very strongly. I was on a train in England about 15 years ago and, and there were two girls sitting opposite me and... Um, Maybe they were 17 or 18 years old. They were going to school. Uh, And you'd call them pretty, by the way, that we judge beauty in the West. Anyway, they were slim and they were blonde and they had nicely whitened teeth. Um, And judging by their appearance, I guess they were up early, making careful selections from their clothing collection, uh, putting on their makeup and making sure that every hair was in the exact position in preparation for that daily fashion show that you get in colleges and schools that certainly do in England, where everybody appears to kind of strut in front of their peers. But, you know, they, were, they look perfect, but when they opened their mouths, their language was terrible. Curse words, gossiping, complaining about everything under the sun. And that's the kind of window into what Peter is getting at here, <clears throat> that a man, sorry, a woman, or a man for that matter, can be like a cup. That's all clean on the outside, but full of mould and dirt on the inside. You see, God doesn't judge beauty like we often do. He looks at the heart. You see, physical beauty can deceive us because it gives us a false measure of what really matters in life. And if we're not naturally born beautiful, and I realise that every every time I wake up and look in the mirror, then we can look at other people and think, I've missed out on life without thousands of dollars of plastic surgery or something. But you see, what counts is what God thinks of us. And in any case, Peter's point is this, that physical beauty fades. You know, we all end up with a decaying body and ageing looks. We all become a bit saggy and wrinkled and grey and bald if you're a man. You see, that's why real beauty for anyone is within the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which Peter says is of great worth in God's sight it's it's beauty that doesn't fade but it lasts 
And it's for that reason that you, do, you meet Christians, you know, many people as they get older, they become grumpier, don't they? So, certainly uh, many older people I've met become grumpier by the year. But you get some Christians who grow more beautiful as they get older. And, you know, when you meet somebody who is elderly, ask yourself this question, what will I be like when I'm that age? Will I have this inner beauty which some elderly people have? You know, I've met some older people over the years, especially when I was a pastor, who have this deep inner beauty. People who don't complain about their ailments all the time. People who are thoughtful, they're giving and they're helpful. I, I know older people who, they get to, they retire and they devote their life to intercession for the church and the world. And I, you know, I really want to be like that when I get into my 70s and 80s, not a grumpy old man. But just a, a kind of applying this in, in a certain direction, thinking about women. You know, how often do we, in our society, do we hear women who kind of lament about the impact of having children upon their bodies? You know, that kind of thinking is actually very worldly, isn't it? You know, it's as if a woman's body was only designed to look sexy and slim and young and firm so that other people could kind of admire it. You know, their bodies are sort of just in existence to be inspected on the beach or something like that. I read a British newspaper and there were so many articles about getting your body ready for your bikini for the summer. But next time you look at a woman who's born children, remember her fruitfulness in giving birth to children. Her body has been used in one of the ways that God has made it to be used for. And that gives beauty. You know, maybe the lines under her eyes that have become permanent from sleepless nights. Uh, they, uh, as she's fed a baby, perhaps they, we should think of them like this, that they bear testimony, those lines under the eyes, to sacrifice and care and devotion to the life of her baby. You see, that's Christian love in action. So we should see the lines as maybe adding beauty, not detracting from beauty. Can you see how the gospel reconfigures everything when we begin to think in different ways? And then Peter comes to Sarah, Abraham's wife. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he uses Sarah as an example uh, of somebody with a beauty which came from submitting to her husband uh, and she called him Lord now I have to confess I sp- spent a long time thinking about Sarah and Abraham but decided not really to talk about it because Sarah never strikes me as a submissive wife to Abraham uh, so I'm not going to say very much about her but you know none of this means <clears throat> thinking about this idea of beauty that a woman shouldn't seek to look nice or care about her appearance or that you should go the other way and dress like a scarecrow. Um, because, and you do find women in churches who are like that. They kind of ignore physical beauty because they're just looking at the inward beauty. But we need to remember, remember that God has made women to be beautiful. And that's something you can never say about men. But the point is, is that in an age which is obsessed with looks and fashion, and women using their sexuality to get attention... What this does is it reminds us to weigh life in God's scales and not in the kind of fickle and corrupted scales of our society. Uh, And those scales just often give a very false reading about what true beauty is. And then we come to number four, which is God's intention for husbands. So Peter turns to husbands and he addresses them directly. So in verse seven he says, 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then I'm going to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where uh, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. So you note in passing that the Bible always tells us what to do. So it tells husbands to love their wives, and it tells wives to submit to and respect their husbands. But it never tells husbands to ensure that their wives submit to them. And it doesn't tell wives to make sure that their husbands love them. It always tells you what to do. And both husbands and wives are accountable to God for the roles that God has given them, assigned to them. So Peter tells husbands to be considerate to to their wives and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel. He means physically weaker. Um, So husbands aren't to use their physical strength to uh, push their wives around, mistreat them or to exploit them in any way. But instead husbands are called to honour and respect their wives. And here in verse 7 he says that husbands um, and wives are, well he says to husbands, your wives are heirs with you in the grace of life. So Peter's making this point which we would not find surprising, but maybe in that culture where women were less than men, he's just making the point that husbands and wives before God are equal, they both share in the gift of eternal life, they're both partakers in the gift of salvation. Um, and then Paul thinking about Paul because I've tried to link these two passages together Paul in Ephesians 5 uh, sets this standard for husbands to love their wives which is about as high as you could possibly imagine Uh, he says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and what did Christ do? well Christ abandoned heaven for a Roman cross to redeem and gather his bride, the church. So what Paul is talking about here is a love that is required from husbands which is costly, painful and enduring. Husbands are to imitate Christ's love for his church. They are to give themselves for the welfare and the best interest of their wife. I cannot conceive of any higher standard of love that a husband could be called to. So Christ's love for his church was a love that gave freely, expecting nothing in return. And husbands are called to do the same. Christ's love for his church was a love that didn't give up when the going got tough. Husbands are called to do the same. Husbands are are to forgive the inexcusable in their wives because they know that God has forgiven the inexcusable in their lives. So C.S. Lewis, I always have a quote from C.S. Lewis, not, not intentionally, But C.S. Lewis says that the husband wears the crown in a marriage. He is the king, but it is never, uh, but it is a crown of thorns. It is a painful crown to wear. 
And you might think it's impossible to, to live like that if you're a husband, but whenever I think that, I meet husbands, I'm shocked into silence by meeting husbands who do live, love their wives like that. And I have on many occasions over the years. So, um, there's an excellent book by a man called Christopher Ash called Married for God. It's a very good book. And he calls husbands to be beauticians. He says, through our, our love for our wives, we are called to make our wives more beautiful, that they should radiate, excel, and reach their full potential. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, they are to cherish them and never misuse them. And finally, I've got, I'm going to speak for two or three more minutes and stop. Uh, this is a picture for the world, my fifth point, a picture for the world. So back in the 1960s, there was a, a dispute between departments in the British government. And the argument, the dispute was a bit about cars, luxury cars. Um, it was about which British ambassadors should be provided with a Rolls-Royce, I think a silver phantom, they're very beautiful cars, uh, for their official duties in, in a foreign capital. Now, you can imagine uh, how this worked, because the Treasury, who controlled the money, wanted to restrict these cars to only three foreign capitals. That was Washington, Moscow, and Paris. But the Foreign Office, who are in charge with diplomacy, they wanted to have a Rolls-Royce with an ambassador for an ambassador in every single uh, capital around the world. That's what, how many countries are there? At the United Nations, 144. That's a lot of Rolls-Royces. So there was this big dispute about money as opposed to having 144 expensive Rolls Royces. This was back in the 1960s. Um, and the foreign, the foreign Office argued this, that uh, most people in a foreign capital will never have been to Britain. Uh, but when they see these magnificent cars gliding through the streets of a foreign capital with, with a Union flag on the front, they will say to themselves, I've never been to Britain, but if they make such beautiful cars, I think I'd like to go and visit. And they will bring their foreign currency and they will more than make up for the cost of the cars and I got this illustration from Christopher Ash uh, in Marriage for God he said in a similar way I like to think that men and women may say to themselves as they watch a Christian marriage I have never seen God sometimes I wonder when I look at the world if God is good or even if there is a God but if he can make a man and a woman love each other like that, if he can make that husband show costly faithful love through sickness as well as in health, if he can give him resources to love his wife when frankly there is nothing in it for him, well then there must be a good God. And if he can give that wife grace to submit so beautifully with such an attractive gentle spirit under terrible trials to her husband, then there must be a good God. I think it's a very moving illustration and I pray for all of us that people would say such things about our marriage, our marriages. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.